team and the person that you work with is so much more important than just their experience. I think experience we can collect, can find advisors for and do our own personal research, but the type and the quality of the person, that's so hard to come by. My greatest fear is not being able to work with these people again. These people know that I'm going to take care of them because it's not our only project, right? These are the people I want to work on, difficult problems for the rest of my life. And is that a realistic expectation? No. Is it a little bit clingy? Yes. But I like these people. Like I choose people based on the quality of their character, not just their pedigree and, and background. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today has a really interesting path. He's gone from software engineer to lawyer to CEO and chief engineer. He is one of the founders of Hyperdraft, a software that allows legal professionals to draft and analyze documents better, faster, and smarter. This is someone who is on a mission to provide lawyers with modern tech tools so that they can live more of their lives outside the billable hour. I am so thrilled to welcome our next lawyer who leads, Tony Tai. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Seagal. It's really great to have you here. And I actually have been trying something new recently, although it will be the first time I do it with a guest on the show. Do you want to be an experiment? Um, I don't think I have a choice. So, yes. <laughs> okay. I'm all about it. <laughs> It's not a big deal, but I've been replacing how are you? Because these days, it's it's a pretty loaded question. How are you has not been more loaded these days than <laughs> it's ever been. So instead of asking how are you, I'm going to ask, what has been your favorite moment so far today? My favorite moment? So you can't ask me that because the problem is it's going to sound so cheesy and made up because honestly, being able to talk to you before we started recording, like being able to nerd out about sci-fi stuff, that made my day. Yeah. So I get to be in your favorite moment today? Yeah. Was it when I talked about The Expanse or when I like really proved my worth with Battlestar Galactica? <laughs> I don't know. It's not about proving your worth. It's about <laughs> opening up. I could see it in your eyes and you shared something that was personal and you were excited about sharing that experience. I, I was there for that. I, I love that connection. So Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Me too. And for everyone that was not part of that conversation, we talked a lot about sci-fi. And if you want to talk really deeply about sci-fi stuff, you can just come to Tony and I. So that being said, <laughs> that being said, and it is for another podcast altogether. So my husband's a, a software engineer and we have talked at length about how I used to be a lawyer. I'm not a practicing attorney anymore. And he's always like, I could never. And so I'm really curious, what makes a software engineer become a lawyer? <laughs> if you ask my GC, it'll just tell you stupidity. Um, he's just like, oh, actually, I'll, I'll share this really funny story. So I met Sean Graney at Goodwin Law. And when I first met him, he assumed I was a partner at the firm. I wasn't. So he just thought, oh, I'm some BS talking senior associate. Then he found out that I was an engineer. And then his next thought was, oh, this guy's a con man. There's no way he's actually an engineer. And then he found out I was actually an engineer. And he's just like, oh, you're just stupid. Why? <laughs> like, why would you have a successful career in anything else and then do that? And I, I've sat and explained it to him. So like a lot of people, there are multiple reasons why I went to law school. 
one of the ones that I say that's like public facing is I was tired of paying for legal bills. So I went and got a legal degree because like any self-respecting engineer, I always think I can do it better. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that's your experience with your husband, but like that's the competitive <laughs> nature of me and maybe. Well, he uh, has me. That, so. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's, that's fair. <laughs> I, I mean, and the other part of it is if I'm being completely honest, which is, you know, something I'm trying to do more of these days is I was a failure my entire life. So I wanted to do one thing that was nice for my mom and my aunt who basically they both raised me. So I was like, if just getting this extra few letters behind my name helps make them feel like they, they weren't complete failures in raising me, like I'll go do that. So a, a big part of it was for family as well. It's interesting, isn't it? My family also very much wanted me to be a lawyer. And a lot of that also came from the fact of seeing my parents were both immigrants and they really had trouble navigating the system. So a lot of the times, because I just was, was born here, I could speak English much better than they could and all of that. I was the de facto person that did a lot of stuff for them. So a lot of what drove me to get my law degree was also for a family. What do you think was the biggest driving factor as far as family was concerned for you? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, right? Like if you're coming from an immigrant family, the prestige and the the pride around having a professional, a kid who's a professional, either a doctor or a lawyer, that carries with it a lot of weight and a lot of, hey, we did this for a reason and and it's paid off. And the other part of it is stability. My parents didn't always have a bunch of cash when we were growing up, we were quite poor. And so they saw that as the the golden egg, if you will, is like, if he gets that job, he'll have a stable, high paying gig, and then all his problems are, are over with. And so for them, it was the stability plus the prestige. Yeah. Honest. Tell me a little bit about your legal journey. So you were a software engineer and then became lawyer, but now you founded Hyperdraft. How did that happen? So went to law school. I had zero intention of practicing law besides for myself. Like, oh, I'll have leverage. I'll understand contracts. Turns out that's not really the case when they put you through law school. You understand the concept of consideration, but not much else. But then I lucked into working for this boutique law firm, picked up on corporate transactions early on in my law school career, which I I don't think a lot of law students have that opportunity because law school is mostly focused around litigation. So if you want to do litigation, that's great. Corporate law is kind of, you know, ephemeral concept that's like, ah, yeah, that's the stuff that happens before litigation. Let's not worry about that. So I I got to work on M&A deals and and venture financing. And so as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, it was really interesting to me, like that whole process. It was basically like a kid in a candy shop getting to learn about what makes a company successful so that they can get investors and, and then ultimately get sold. So I got suckered into that part. The other thing that kept me in it I'm sure if you talk to your husband about it, if you showed him like the same concepts and constructs for what it takes to draft a contract or a brief or any of these other like procedural items, you realize that being an engineer, a software engineer and uh, a lawyer is not that much different. So I carried over a lot of concepts I learned as an engineer over to my legal practice. Like what? What were some of those concepts? One of the things I, I talk about a lot is like seeing around corners. One of the pieces of advice I got from my um, mentor early on is good lawyers ask, what if, what if, what if? Great lawyers follow that up by saying, so what, so what, so what? It's such a core concept to like the practice of law because I think as lawyers, we wanna cover every single possible risk factor and scenario that we don't think about the business practicality of doing all of that. Mm -hmm. And so you have the same problem when it comes to engineering. We can't account for every single potential 
error. And so just accounting for the stuff that might be around the corner is a really good skill set as an engineer. So if you carry that over with the legal practice, it's really beneficial to figure out, okay, yeah, that could happen, but what's the likelihood? Pretty low. Let me account for this other situation that's more likely and then put that into the draft of the agreement. It's almost like risk assessment for both. Exactly. For engineering and for legal practice. I've never actually heard anyone put those two, two things together in that way. That's super interesting to me. You also said as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, did you already have a business when you started practicing? What did that mean? I can't help myself. I had a business when I was in college. I worked full time running that software engineering and tech consultancy business. And in law school, I got a group of the law students together to take a course at the business school because it sounds so immature, but I'll tell you anyways, there's this fratty business guy and he pissed me off and I, he was just like, oh, we're just so much better than the lawyers. I'm like, really? All right. Like I can beat you guys at your own game. So I petitioned for us to get a course at the business school to a class called entrepreneurship. We started up another business during the semester and then we got the top score in the entire class just to show up one guy. That, that's how like... <laughs> in retrospect, you're just like, that's so petty, Tony. I'm like, yeah, but I had fun. So, so what? That's actually pretty hilarious. My question is, how did you get everyone else to do it with you? I um, can be pretty convincing. Um, <laughs> no, uh, no, it was just like, it was fun. You meet all these lawyers and one of the stereotypes we get and we hear a lot of, and this is why I love meeting people like you is there's this presumption that we're boring people. We only read the law all day. Like we go home and we're like, oh, let me uh, open up the new law book and just like start reading my way through it. We have different passions and stuff. And so when I'm, I met this crew at law school, like they're just people that are interested in different things. One guy's in, in politics now. The other guy was in entertainment. And it's just we just wanted to get a team together that figured out how to work well together. And for me, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was like me building leadership skills. Yeah. Um, early on, but I'm like one of the most reluctant leaders you're probably going to meet. I'm just open about it. I really didn't want to be a leader. A lot of it had to do with just the responsibility behind it. I just, I, I respect leaders and I think that there's a lot of obligation and responsibility in taking that title and taking that role that I think people kind of discount. So the reluctant leader becomes the CEO of a new company. I mean, clearly always an entrepreneur. That's not surprising, but CEO. First of all, how did Hyperdraft become a concept? When did that start for you? Help me understand that a little bit. Yeah. So the idea was planted in law school. We started iterating through it in law school. One of my law professors, Michael Chaz, and I would talk. And I'm just like, dude, I don't get it. Like if you talk to your husband, who's a software engineer, right? Like if he told you the number of tools that he had at his disposal, you'd be like, well, why don't I have any of those tools. As an engineer, we don't build anything like the same thing twice. We, we don't reinvent the wheel every single time. And I'm like, I don't understand why in the legal field, that's a constant issue. So I started hunting for products for us at the small business clinic. I worked at USC's small business clinic and I was hunting for legal tech tools to help make our lives easier. So it started there, but really the idea started to take shape when I was in my first year of practice and I was getting just pummeled with work. Uh, I'll tell you the exact moment when I came up with the first iteration of one of the apps I worked on. Mm -hmm. I was, I'll never forget this. One day I'll write it as like a short story or something. But I was sitting down in this partner's office looking at my feet because he was about to assign me 
one more deal. And I looked up and I, and I was begging, basically. I said, I can't do this. I'm going to break. I remember him turning his face away from the computer and just looking at me and saying, like, you just got to figure it out. And then turned his head back. And so I wow. went back to my office. As depressing as it sounds, I'm, I'm a happy person, as you can tell. But as depressing as it sounds, like, I wept. I was like, I'm going to get fired. I'm dying. I'm so sad. Mm -hmm. I don't sleep enough. I'm depressed. But my whole mentality was, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out with a bang. Right? And so I'm like, all right, like, with everything you know, Tony, if you're going to get fired, you got to give this a shot. So what do you got to do? Okay, I got to get all these concepts from a spreadsheet into a Word document. Spreadsheet, Word document. Spreadsheet, Word document. Um, you know what? I'll write a damn program to, to do this. And so in 45 minutes, I was able to get a script out that converted this Excel spreadsheet into a disclosure schedule that I needed that would have taken me probably 13 or 14 hours. Wow. And so it did that. And I will never forget. I slept in my office. I was like, oh, this thing is working. I'm just going to sleep under, underneath my desk. And uh, that was the first iteration. That's how we started it. But I'm a skeptic like most lawyers. And so, you know, I was building this out and I'm like, man, I got to figure out product market fit and all this other stuff. So I stuck around mostly for R&D. And my previous bosses will back me up on that because when I interviewed, I, I, I'm very upfront and very transparent. I don't want to be a lawyer forever. I just want to build tools for you guys. And they're like, that's fine. I need a body. Why don't you come over? And they've become friends and investors in our company uh, wow. since. So last year is when it all came together. We saw the amount of pressure that lawyers were getting at law firms and just everywhere. We realized, all right, now's the time we need to go out with this. People are working remote now. So there's this higher threshold and acceptability of technology. It's a good time to attack. And so we, we left early last year, I think February of last year. We're about to hit a burr one year mark here. Who's yeah, me? That's me and Jace Lynch, who's my my co-founder. If you ask him, he might refer to himself as a hostage. <laughs> but dude, the funny thing is he never agreed to co-founding the company with me. He just came along. So he's my <laughs> he's like he's my junior associate that I trained up when I was at Goodwin. He gets mad at me because he's just like, You had this technology and you didn't share it with me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, man. But I like I need you to know what the struggle felt like. And that's that's something I focus on a lot with our team is we have to be empathetic with our users. I think that's one of our key advantages is we've been there. We've stayed up until 4 a.m. every single night for weeks on end. We know what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a great product that's actually addressing a real need. So you're talking about a person who was a junior associate. And, and this is really interesting to me because we talk about leadership. We talk about how you got all these people in law school to do this amazing business class thing. And then now you have a junior associate that's founded or maybe as a hostage has founded this company with you. <laughs> yeah. How are you per so persuasive? I want to dig there because I want to help the listeners out there who are looking yeah. to be more persuasive with the endeavors that they want to make. Take me through that process. What are you doing in those conversations? I think one of the problems, you know, I don't want to make this so broad sweeping. It just sounds like a, an overgeneralization. But we hear about the transactional aspect of relationships. And so people are always looking to get something out of someone else. So this sounds like very like theoretical and abstract, but let me apply it to like my dealings with Jace. Jace is a human being, right? Like I treated him like a human being. I trained him up, but I also gave more than I took. And that's always my core belief. Actually, I asked him this a few months ago. I asked him why he, why he joined. 
you shouldn't do that. That's like asking someone like, why are you going out with me? Which I probably do too much of. I'm like, and so when I asked him and he's just like, well, Tony, you always had my back and like you always gave and you just built for this. And I told him, you want to know a secret, dude? Every time I took a bullet for you, I thought about throwing you in front of it. And he's just like, what? I'm like, it's so easy to throw somebody else like under the bus. It's way harder to see it identify the desire to do it and then choose the right thing to do for your team. And yeah. I think that people see that and it's all show, not tell, right? Like show, not tell. I've encountered good leaders, bad leaders. And the common trend I see is the good leaders always just showed they weren't just talk. They didn't just say like, oh, I've got your back and then go to bed before you have a chance to, you know, make another cup of coffee and pull an all nighter. So I think it's building that credibility with people and, and walking a walk and not just talking and talk. I think too much these days, people think, oh, I'll just promise them the world and then maybe I can deliver later. Whereas at least my personal mentality is it's our job to do right by the people we work with and to show them how to lead. Yeah, I don't think it's an overgeneralization at all. And I think you've actually really hit upon something really interesting, which is the acknowledgement that our initial reaction to things can be, well, I'm going to throw this person under the bus or I'm going to be frustrated yep. or I'm going to do these things, right? It's the acknowledgement that we are not perfect, that we do have these thoughts, but also making an intentional choice to do the other thing. And I think that awareness that it's OK to have those thoughts initially and then still choose something else. I think that's really important. Uh, yeah, I try to make sure the team understands that because it's it's an easy like cop out by saying, oh, I wasn't born like this. I wasn't born a leader. I wasn't born to sacrifice. I wasn't born to do all these things. And, and then you realize, actually, it's a choice, right? To your point, it's a choice that you can make and it gets easier and there are benefits from it. But I have to tell you, like the people that seek out the benefits, those are, it doesn't turn out usually the way that they want it to. You have to find the intrinsic value of the action, right? Mm -hmm. Showing someone that you can be a better person and a better leader by sacrificing and that the only payout is that they do that for somebody else. That's my goal. You can't make it a transactional relationship where it's like, oh, I do this for you and then you do this for me. It needs to be a, I do this for you, please do this for other people. And yeah. you know, if you do it for me, that's great. I really love that. And like our GC, who's a partner, I mean, yeah, I convinced Jace to join, but like the question I get a lot of is like, how the heck did you get a big law firm partner to leave his very stable job to join you. And it's these conversations that we would have day in, day out. And for him to realize, oh, Tony should not just talk. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit about your team. I, I did meet Ashley, who I'm a huge fan of. And she is someone that is so smart and also believes very deeply in you and what Hyperdraft does. How do you hire the talent that you do? Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about Ashley a little bit. Ashley is an interesting one, right? I constantly get phone calls from other CEOs saying like, what's Ashley's background, man? Like, was she CMO somewhere else before all of this? Like, she's doing a really good job. I'm seeing you guys everywhere, all that stuff. And I'm like, nope. Oh, what, what did she do before? I'm like, oh, she was a debt finance attorney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I get the question a lot of like, well, why did you hire Ashley if she doesn't have that experience in marketing? And I tell them I've spent time in, companies and like big corporations. And what I realize is the team and the person that you work with is so much more important than just their experience. I think experience we can collect and we can find advisors for and do our own personal research, but the type and the quality of the person, that's so hard to come by. And you hear this all the time. I, you can ask my team, you can ask Ashley. My greatest fear 
is not being able to work with these people again. Wow. So yeah, these people know that I'm going to take care of them because it's not our only project, right? These are the people I want to work on difficult problems for the rest of my life. And is that a realistic expectation? No. Is it a little bit clingy? Yes. But <laughs> I like these people. Like I choose people based on the quality of their character, not just their pedigree and, and background. Now, it just turns out Ashley also has an amazing pedigree and background. Like she's super sharp. I knew she would pick up this stuff. And when we first started talking, I realized she has this creative edge to her that I wanted her to enjoy more of. That's the other thing is like seeing the potential in people, seeing what my old law school professor, Michael Chazza, calls raw materials. And you see people with such great raw materials and, and they're doing something that isn't utilizing it. Man, it hurts. Hmm. Right? Like it just hurts. People are creative. That's the beautiful stuff about being alive and like working with people is like seeing how creative they can be. So how I pick people is raw potential on top of all that stuff. A lot of what people misunderstand about leadership is it's not just a great leader that makes a great team. It's also having great teammates. Yeah. And so if you hire poorly, and I've done that in the past, I've hired poorly. And actually, it's when I neglected everything that I'm looking for now. When I just went for skills and neglected to look at personality, fit, and quality and, and character of the person, I just said, I don't have time for this. I need to find somebody who has skills in Y and Z categories. Let me hire that person. Great. That person did not give two cents about me or the team. They just cared about getting a job done. And what I realized over time is that is not a good formula for building a long lasting team because you need to be able to see and, and anticipate the needs of the team long term, not just short term. Agreed. So how do you identify the attributes that you're looking for when you go through an interview process? Like, what was it about Ashley particularly that was like, yes, she has what it takes to be part of this organization? I'm not sure if you're like, you're trying to get squeeze this out of me, but like we had a u unusual interview process with Ashley. I had her meet other teammates and I had her meet my friends and I had her meet my clients and I watched the interactions. We would whiteboard problems. I'd bring up a problem and then see her participation in it. And that's how we interview is seeing how people not only solve problems by themselves, but how they solve problems as a team. I know it sounds cheesy. No, it does like, not. This is it's true. fascinating to me. It's true. I send out an email to every new person that starts. And like the bullet points we use are fail fast, fail openly, over communicate, and good luck, have fun, which is a StarCraft reference because I'm a nerd. Yeah. And what that like addresses is fail fast, fail openly. I think lawyers, it, it makes sense because we're lawyers, right? We feel like we can't fail. It's, it's like this thing that's absolutely fatal if we fail, but that's not how the world works. Like we fail all the time. We make little mistakes. That's just how life works. So it's dropping the ego around failure so that we can fail together and learn together. That kind of leads into the next point of over-communication, making sure that people know to over communicate their thoughts because I don't want someone like sitting in the corner and being like, well, I had this idea, but I never said anything about it. I'm like, well, that's good as not having any idea. Right. Like, I need you to say something. I can't read your mind. If you feel like it's an important suggestion, just suggest it. There's no shame here. No one will make fun of you. If it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. And all this will row in that direction. And then the last part is just like learning to have fun. Life's too short for us to be dreading what we do with so much of our lives. Like if you take a step back and do the math, don't. Don't do it because I have. It's not a good. But you realize how much time you spend working. You're just like, oh, crap. 
yeah, I should probably enjoy this. <laughs> like this is, this is, this is, I don't have to enjoy every part of it, but I should enjoy a good chunk of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I totally understand that. I was a lawyer turned COO of the company of online before I became their chief storyteller. Now I get to talk to people like you every day and there's administrative stuff that comes up. There's things that I have to do, but at the end of the day, I'm really excited about it. And it's absolutely what I want to be spending my time doing. Love it. One other thing that I wanted to say, and it does go into your mission. I asked Ashley, I asked her, you know, why also, why did you leave to do this? And she said, I wanted to make sure that this technology was being made by people who love the law. Found that to be really important because there are a lot of people out there that are creating legal technologies that are either never been through the struggle or they're really angry about it. (laughs) And and to come from a place of I like want to help and I want it to be great and I love what the law can do, I thought was really powerful. So tell me a little bit about your mission, which is to provide lawyers with the ability to live their lives outside the billable hour. I love how you phrased that. I don't think I could do a better job of uh, like how you and Ashley just talked about like the love of the law. For me, it's the love of the law, but it's also the love of the people that are doing it. I I, I keep apologizing for being cheesy, but these are friends and family, right? Like these are the people that used to have more time to spend with their community and help move the community forward. And it bugs me greatly that these people don't have the time to not only spend time with their friends and family, but to give back to the community. Yeah. Right. These are the people that used to be on their school boards and help with pro bono projects and community building projects. How can you honestly say that these are the same people that are doing those types of projects when you're forcing people to bill like above 1900 or 2000 and they're billing 2,500 hours a year? Your best legal minds are doing that. And it bugs me. Um, So that's the big part of the mission is like getting people their lives back. And remember what I said before, my recommendation is always if you're going to do something, don't expect direct repayment. My only ask is that people pay it for it. Spend that time giving back to the community, giving back to your friends and family. That's what life's about. And and we're here to help. How do you take that mission and turn it internally to your own team? I'll give you a good example. Our CFO is not a lawyer. And um, I've shared stories with him, spent time with him, taken him to events and introduced him to other attorneys and just gotten other people to share their stories. What you're doing is like something that I'm going to leverage and share with our non-lawyer teammates because it helps give them a lens around these are people too and these people have passions outside of being a lawyer and to realize that like it can be quite debilitating so when we start on a mission we name our products and projects after people Mm -hmm. so we can call this like project diana right or project bobby and it comes from a user story right usually we get fan mail sometimes we get like Emails from people saying, I stayed up all night. I had to do this stupid thing. And I missed my kids recital, stuff like that. So we named the project after them. And that rallies the troops to that mission because, yeah, project, I don't know, Exodus sounds cool and techie, but project Sean getting, you know, getting Sean to be able to attend more recitals for his daughters, that hits home in a way that's way more human than I could ever do by like coming up with a cool brand or, you know, talking to these people all day, they realize that the stuff that they're working on impacts people's lives on a day-to-day basis. That's, that's how we do it here. 
Oh, my God. At Lawline, we read customer comments like all the time. And we have all these people that are either saying, wow, like you really helped me do this or I really wish I could see more of that. Right. And we were always doing these product fixes and these feature updates and things of that nature. But to name them after the people that inspired them and know that you're impacting their lives so that they can do the thing that they they wanted to do. That is so much more powerful than just being like, here's a new feature update. I love that. I'm literally going to take that back to Lawline and tell them that we have to start doing that. That's very cool. Yeah. I learned it from a CEO who his company does, like a biotech company that builds, you know, technology to save people's lives. And for them, think about that, right? Like the impact that their project names have on on the products that they're making. They're saving lives. Wow. And we're not doing anything near that. I'm not a doctor. I can't save lives but I can save people time. And if that's all people you know, want these days, it's a good mission for, for us who aren't healthcare providers. Yeah, absolutely. Time is extremely valuable. And I think now more than ever, we're starting to realize how important it is to leverage all of it. Well, I'm going to just rapid fire a few questions for you. What does it mean to be a lawyer who leads? Or what does leadership in law mean to you? I think it's something that we miss a lot, but I, I identify in like the best leaders is this concept of servant leadership. You have to sacrifice. Leadership is a position of service, not a position of hierarchy. There's one phrase that I would hear from one of my mentors in law school that like caught me off guard when he first started saying it. We'd hang out, he'd give me all this advice, and at the end of the meeting, every single time, it was just, how else can I help, Tony? It warms my heart and it kind of hit me because I'm like, how else can you help? You've been helping me the entire time. And what a question, right? So I think leadership in the law needs to be circling around that concept. And it can be as simple as asking your people, okay, how else can I help? If there was one thing you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be? I think about this all the time. There's too many like abstract concepts. So I'll talk about one thing, which is in the practice of law, I think It'd be nice if collaboration were emphasized more. I've got this question like all this week. So it's like one of the things that's top of mind for me. I think as lawyers, we think about things in a you versus me situation so often that it's hard to break out of a, what about us? Like, how do we work together? So that's one thing that I would want to change about the legal field is as a general premise, how do we think about being more collaborative and working well with others? Yes. Agreed. What is something people seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? That, that I'm trying to replace lawyers? That people constantly ask me, what will we do once your technology like takes over? And I'm like, the practice of law is one of the most human professions. And I know it sounds weird, but um, it is literally the establishment of rules between people by people about how do we interact with each other. And so there is no technology that will ever sever that line. So no, our our job is actually quite the contrary. Our job is to make lawyers more human, try to bring it back to a more, you know, humane and people-oriented business. By saving people time, by not having to do all of these contractual things that Hyperdraft can actually help with, they can focus more on the things that you were talking about earlier, which is giving back to our community, being able to represent people that are underrepresented, being able to do more of that human work and important work that I think a lot of us went to law school to do. Also, I just love, what are you going to do when like the robots take over? I mean, that's just a really funny question to me. That's a chat for our sci-fi podcast, which we're starting up when? 
We're starting that like tomorrow. Okay. I'm so <laughs> down for this. I don't even think you know. No, I'm I so actually down. really do know. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> How do you start your day? I start my day, I meditate every morning. So um, I wake up, usually just sit up in bed, and then I start with a 15 or 20 minute meditation. And uh, through that process, just think about what I want to accomplish that day. That's great. How long have you been doing that for? Not long enough. I would say probably five years. Last five years I've been doing that. What is the most influential book you've ever read? Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. I think that one might be like cliche, but maybe not. Maybe enough people haven't read it. But Daniel Kahneman is an economist, but in that book, he really talks about the psychology of human decision making. That's really fascinating. And it is a good way to like peel back how our brains work. I, uh, I have not read the book. I did do the Blinkist on it. I'm sure that doesn't do it at all justice, but I was very fascinated by it as well. Okay, final question before we wrap up. What is a piece of practical advice to our listeners who are leaders and future leaders in the legal industry looking to follow your lead? I would say I am, and I continue to be a reluctant leader, right? But every turn has signaled me to to doing it. And so I would say, listen to yourself a little bit more. I know that sounds a little bit abstract, but you should listen to your your thoughts a little bit more. And, and, and if you, there's so much noise and you're so busy that you can't find the time to do it, I would say invest and figure out a way to to build in time so you can think about what, what it is that you're contributing and what, what it is that you're doing. But that's one of my mistakes is I kind of went through life for a few years there where I was like, not listening to myself and continuing to fight my own internal monologue. Well, on behalf of the leaders and future leaders listening, I want to thank you so much for being here. How can someone connect with you online if they want to learn more about you and Hyperdraft? Yeah, so you can check us out at hyperdraft.ai or check out any one of our social media pages on Instagram or LinkedIn or, you know, shoot me an email, Tony at hyperdraft.ai. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry, with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.